Last week's guest on this podcast got me thinking a lot about the women I have talked to frequently who are friends of mine, who I'm friendly with, who have served time in prison or have been incarcerated and what they did with their lives after, which is to a person they never returned. And it kind of defies a lot of stereotypes when you hear from these folks. Um, they are no longer some sort of fictional character. Uh, there's no longer that arm's length distance. You get a sense of these people as fully formed human beings who made mistakes, paid for them. And then if ever there was a case of resilience, it's these women uh, who went and changed their lives in dramatic ways. And so I want to return to a woman I met and profiled and as painful as some of it is to listen to just really blossomed and I've kept in touch with her and and I think you'd really enjoy hearing this Queen D that you have to stand up for yourself regardless in order to make it to the next level this is in her words a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson, as we enter our fifth year. Very proud of that. I really am. And in elevating and amplifying the voices of very strong, powerful, resilient women um, who you don't always hear from. I heard it again this week. Oh, I, I don't feel comfortable talking about myself. You know, said a woman, said no man ever. <laughs> so um, I think you'll enjoy hearing from Queen D, who has not really told her story publicly. She did uh, once, but not in this way. And it got very intimate and personal. Queen D. Where were you born? I was born in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hospital or home? Uh, in the hospital. For your mother, your number what of how many? I'm number, I'm number one out of four. You're the big sister. Yeah, I'm the oldest. <laughs> did you tell everybody what to do? I did, and I showed everybody what to do, and, you know, she kind of showed them the ropes. And did you beat on them to get them to act right? Or? Every once in a while, yeah. I might have to pop them in the head because I had some little <laughs> brothers. <laughs> but uh, my sister, she I'm 22 and a half years older than her, so it was, you know, a little different with her because I have kids on my own that's older than her, so. Oh, my word. So it was like helping my mother raise her. Yeah, my mother and her mother were pregnant at the same time, and I have an uncle who's five months older than me. So I have really? the same kind of circumstance. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So we got a lot in common. Yeah. Did anyone ever confuse you with your baby brother's mother? Did they think that you were his mother? Yes. Oh, yeah. A lot of people thought, he thought I was his mother. He would call me mommy for the longest time because I got two children, that um, one that's the same age as he is and one that's older than he is. I got a brother that's um, 29 and I got a daughter that's 28, but I also have an older daughter that's 31. Yeah. So she's older than him. So she was always calling me mommy. So he followed in the footsteps of calling me mommy too. Yeah. So I had to teach him and train him that I'm not mommy. I'm your big sister. And he, he would cry because um, he would think that I'm trying to separate him or not want him or in, in a sense. But not like that, but just try to separate and get him to understand that I'm his sister, not his mom. Because uh-huh. he was falling behind my daughter. Did that bother your mom that he thought of you as... Oh, no. I don't think she really... Seen the difficult. We all stayed in the home because I stayed in the home with my mom. But I think that he always would come and follow me around with my kids too, you know. But my mom is deaf, so I don't, she never really heard him call me mom. Uh-huh. Mom, um, like, you know, I could hear him call me mom, but she didn't. So, 
did you sign? Yes, uh-huh. ASL, American Sign Language. Do you still sign? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did your brother sign? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's our first language. So everyone signs. So before you even spoke words, yes. you signed? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that like? Oh, uh, I don't really remember because it's my first language, you know. But it was just like a, it was something special, like a love language between me and my mom because other people couldn't do it, you know. So, but when I started learning how to speak, you know, I was kind of delayed in my speech because my mom is deaf and she couldn't really teach me how to talk. So she taught, you know, of course, sign language so I could communicate with her. Yeah. So how did you learn to formally speak? In school. How old were you? Um, probably around six or seven. And who was it who taught you? Um, teachers. Teachers. Didn't you tell me you had a speech pathologist? I did. Uh-huh. Yes, I had a, um, got a speech therapist around the first grade, I think, because they kind of figured I was kind of delayed in my, in my speaking and writing and um, my ability to learn how to read and write. Do you still remember that woman? I do. What was her name? Miss Smith. Yeah. And what did she do? How did she work with you? Um, She was very patient. That's what I remember. And, um, you know, she would teach me how to write my name. That was the first thing that she taught me how to pronounce my name and how to write my name. And I still remember that to this day. That's almost like, you know, like a Helen Keller moment. It's like such an epiphany to yes. understand this is my name. This is how it looks when this you write it. This is how it looks, yeah. This is how I say it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. there's a, like a whole sense of an identity, you uh-huh. know. It was like it, I woke up. It's like I woke up like, oh, this is who I am. This is my name. Oh, I understand how this is what I'm supposed to do, and this is how I'm supposed to learn it. You know, so I started picking it up from there. You know, once I learned how to write, you know, um, she didn't even teach me my ABCs first. I mean, she she taught me my ABCs, but then she um, started out with teaching me how to write my name and identifying with who I am. I'm an individual. Yeah, it was pretty cool. It's a pretty cool experience that I can remember. Well, how do you say in sign language that you're angry with your mom? Oh, by the way you yeah, look, by yeah, your you, face. You, you use your facial expressions with your body um, hand signals. You know, with the, um, and you might get really language. animated. You might. Yeah, you do. You have to get animated because you know you want the person that is um, you're communicating with to understand how you're feeling and the explanation of it. But it's almost like a dance, like a dance of the hands. It is. And you see it, and it's so expressive. Yes. And I had to learn that years later in in college. I had to learn that. I went to CPCC, and um, I took up ASL to better understand the language and better understand where the community that that I'm part of and where I came from. So um, they taught me how and why we have to use expression. I mean, it's, it's very um simple if you think about it. It's kind of um you know common sense to use like surprise a surprise face as for like an explanation or a down face as in a question. Mm-hmm. You know, a down a eyebrows. By, yeah, a furrowed brow. Yeah, furrowed brow for like a question mark ah. or a question of anything. So you know I had to learn those things and they had to reteach me that and so I can understand it better so I can better communicate with my mother and the deaf community. A lot of kids, for instance, if mom speaks Spanish, then the kid as a small kid becomes the interpreter for the world. Right. Did you become like your mom's interpreter when you would go to the grocery store? Absolutely. The grocery store, watching the news, watching the stories, um, everything. I did everything for my, you know, as far as communicating everything for her growing and up. For some kids, this means that they grow up really fast. Yes. Because, I mean, if the doctor has something really heavy or the police officer or whoever has mm-hmm. something really, really heavy mm-hmm. he needs to talk to your mother about, then you're the conduit and you're all of a sudden talking about very grown-up things. Yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Did that cause any problem for you when, when you were like, oh, I don't, I don't, like all of a sudden I'm privy to, I understand this very sort of 
private part of my mother's life, this very grown-up part, because I'm having to deal with the the light bill or the cops or the, or the yeah, whoever. It, it, it grows you up absolutely fast, very quickly. Like, I had to learn a lot of things um, really fast in order to catch up with the understanding of how I had to communicate things with my mom. So it was like a, um, you know, but it becomes like second nature. So it's like something you have to do because, you know, um, this is what they teach you to do. Yeah. Especially if you're the oldest. Yeah. Because you're the first one she looks to. Yes, exactly. You know, she looks at me like, she does it today. Like, how old were you when you left home? I was 16. And where did you go? Um, I moved in with me and my boyfriend uh-huh. at the time. We moved in together in a town home. Yeah. Was that hard for her? Was she, like, hard for her to let you go? Um, it was, but then again, it wasn't because, I, you know, I grew up so fast. Um, she probably just kind of wanted me to be on my own, but um, she also had my other siblings there, too, to, to look to for help. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by the time they had certain devices for her to communicate with, like the TTY or the TDD, for her to um, call people. Yeah. Was it hard for you to leave her? It was and it wasn't. I left because I felt like I was being um, released of all the burdens and responsibility that I had, you know, that came with being um, having a deaf mother. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like, okay, I'm going off to be on my own. I don't have to take care of her anymore. She could take care of herself. Was that probably freedom, relief? It, I can be young. Was, yeah. I can be young. I can just go play. Yeah, it was kind of like that. But, you know, I still had a responsibility because I had two children by that time. Yeah. Yeah. Two children at 16. Mm-hmm. So you were a mother at what? 13. And uh, the man you moved in with, was he the child's father? Uh, no, he was just a boyfriend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you, I mean, you've had children since then, if they wanted to become a parent at 13 or move away at 16, what do you tell them? Like, by virtue of your experience, what do you tell them? Good idea, bad idea, or what to think about? Um, Well, my daughter, um, after she had my grandson, she had her child at 16 as well. Mm -hmm. And after she had my grandson, um, she wanted to move away with um, her child's father back to Greensboro because I had moved my family here to Charlotte. So she wanted after she gave birth, um, she decided to move in with his his mother. You know that was a decision that she made, and you know I didn't really agree with it, but you know I allowed her to do it, and she still stayed in school, still graduated. Co- I mean, um, high school. But you all remained pretty close. And friendly. Like, mm-hmm. there are some families, you know, you're dead to me. I never want to speak to you again. This is the biggest mistake of your life. Blah, 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 blah. A lot of drama. Well, it, it was kind of like that, but it was very short-lived because she knew that we come from a place of love and conditioning. And um, she knew that I love her and that I want the best for her and my grandson. So she, she knows that, you know, internally. But... I believe she just wanted the responsibility just to be her and and her child's father. So I believe that's why she moved away. What is it in your family that, you know, you you profoundly disagreed with your daughter, but she's still your daughter. She's still family, and you're still going to love her, and you still want to be part of her life. What does that look like? It's, um, I think if they come across in a disrespectful manner if um, to get away from me, um, that's what that would look like. like what okay. did that sound like? Um, oh, well, Mom, I just, you know, I make my own decisions and, you know, let me be responsible for myself and my child. I'm just going to go away, stay with. That sounds awfully nice and reasonable. Yeah, Nobody. It, well, <laughs> you know, it, it 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 was, but, you know, I allowed her to make her own decision as far as because she was a mother. That I remember when I was 16 and had a kid, you know, and, and left, you know, I wanted to leave my mom. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to go. I wanted the transition to be smooth as possible. So I didn't I wanted her to be successful and, and comfortable in who she was as as a mom. So I didn't want it 
I didn't want that stereotypical, oh, I'm done with you for life. I want us to still have a relationship. So I try to be more on the understanding side than on the side of, oh, I'm washing my hands of you because of this. Yeah. Yeah. I just see way too many people where it's like, we're not speaking. Yeah. You know, and that it hurts my heart. Mm-hmm. It really does. Well, we had a period where we weren't speaking because I didn't always agree with, you know, her um, choices and her decisions because I didn't really like her, her child's father at all. Still don't. Because Did your mother like <laughs> your children's fathers? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. She voiced her opinion in it. Yeah. You know, and, you know, at that age and that time, I really didn't care. So, you know, that's why I moved on. So that I could just do this on my own and not have you involved or, you know, have your input in it. Let me just do this on my own because I do have these children. They are my responsibility. So that's kind of like how I did her as well. But she eventually came back around. She's that was her calling me just now. <laughs> yeah, she you know we're very close. She stayed across the street from me. You know, um, we have a very close relationship, and I think it's because I didn't put a lot of that pressure on her. Like, how do you relate to your kids now, in a way that you could not when you were a teenager yourself? What I relate to my kids today. Um, even my sons as well, is that we are our team. So regardless, we have to still stick together in order to make it work because we are together and we have to keep each other together in order to keep moving on to the next level. You know, because the world is not going to give you anything, but we have to try to still coexist with one another and understand one another as a team because life is hard. And we still, we're going to need one another. You know, we can't always just lean on other people. We're going to have to learn how to lean on each other in order to still maneuver through life. And that there's such power in family. It is. It is. So, you know, I teach them that love and continue being a team is very important. I want to ask you about going to prison. Can you uh-huh. can you talk about that? Oh yeah, sure. Well, I appreciate that because I yeah. admire you so very much, and I want to thank you. I've talked to a couple of women who've been to prison, but I want to talk to a lot more. Uh-huh. And I told you I want to talk to women who are coming out of prison. Yes, because I think there's just like a whole host of misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so, did you ever think, well, one day I'm just going to go to prison? Oh no. <laughs> No, definitely not. Um, You know, it happened. I went and I learned. So, you know, it it wasn't easy. You know, um, I had to adapt. You know, I did 19 and a half months in the county jail um, on 23 hours lockdown. And also in the beginning, I was pregnant. So that, you know, that's kind of why I went. To jail because I was protecting myself and my my kids and my unborn baby. So yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. What you want to? Um, what happened? Well, they say it was um, manslaughter. I say it was self defense. So I got um, I got charged with um, voluntary manslaughter. That was the first charge. Um, no, the first charge was first degree murder, and um, that's pretty serious. Yes, first degree, first to second degree murder, um, a forethought, malice, a malice forethought. And was this one of your children's fathers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Which which child or children was um, the father of? Let me see, one, two, three. Um, the fourth child. <laughs> okay, not the one you were pregnant with. Yeah, the one I was pregnant with. That was her father. Oh. Mm-hmm. And. You all had. We had. We had. Um, was he living there? Was he, he wasn't living there, but he would come there and stay. You know, periodically, and you know he sold drugs, so he was always in and out. All what the kind time. of drugs? He sold weed, um, sometimes cocaine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he could have been charged with a felony. He could have. Oh yeah. Did he have a felony record? Uh, I believe so. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so what time of day was it? He shows it up was, at the house? It was broad daylight. You know, he shows up. Was he high? Um, he could have been high. I don't really remember. Um, I've heard rumors that he did um, coke, but he never did it around me. Yeah. 
Um, and but, had he ever been violent with you before? Yes. Mm-hmm. And what did that look like? Um, it didn't look good at all. You know, sometimes he'd just go from, you know, zero to 100. And um, he he was always real flippy. And he would just flip for, you know, any reason. Did he lay hands on you? Oh, yeah. He's choked me out and, you know, body slammed me while I was pregnant. And, yeah, he was a pretty strong guy. And it was like no control. Did you ever get a restraining order? No. I didn't. Because? Um, I thought that the situation would stop or go away. Magical thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so he shows up, and what's the fight about? He um, wants what? I can't really remember what the fight was about, but um, I know that we got into a confrontation and that, um, you know, he was he started jumping on me, and I was in my bedroom and he just he just flipped out and um I know I, from my understanding he had a, a girlfriend down the down the sidewalk that he was sleeping with and that's one of the reasons why I told him don't come back to my house so um the argument was telling him to leave my house and he didn't want to leave and you know he kept coming back attacking me cuz he was upset that I was telling him not to come back to my house attacking you how he was jumping on me, like punching me in my chest and my head and, you know, like with a closed fist. And I couldn't stop him. Like, I, I couldn't stop him. I wanted him to stop, but he wouldn't. He Did you ever him. think to yourself, this man could kill me? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought, you know, at that time, you know, I thought he was going to kill me and my kids, you know, because they're not his. My my three children, I had three children, Um at the time, I was pregnant with my fourth one by him, but the three kids weren't his. So did they witness this? Yes. How old were they? There was um, ten, eight, and three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and did was they have memories of it? Oh yeah, and they're still very vivid for them. Even the three-year-old. Yes, he still remember. I was talking to him about a month ago about it. He said, "Yeah, mommy." Uh, I remember, because I asked him, I said, do you still, do you remember me when you was that little? And he was like, yeah, mommy, I remember you. I even remember when um, the situation happened, I was on a bed, and, you know, I couldn't do anything. And he was crying and screaming, and he was like, you know, he was so scared. He was so scared that he couldn't help me. Yeah. Yeah. So That's hard on kids. Mm-hmm. And so you had a gun? I did. I had um, I had a couple of guns, and I had um, when he came back up the stairs, you know, because he was um, going down the stairs. His mother had came. He was going down the stairs, and I told him, I said, "Don't come back to my house no more." You know, I was yelling at him and um, screaming at him, and he didn't like that. It was disrespectful to him, and um, so he came back up the stairs to jump on me again, and I grabbed my gun. He tried to grab my gun, and that's when I shot him. Did you intentionally shoot him, or did the gun just go off? I didn't intentionally shoot him. I, you know, I was um, afraid, and then I was afraid that, you know, I was you. I grabbed the gun to scare him to not come back because he was coming back up the stairs to attack me again because he just got through attacking me in front of my kids. Like he didn't give a fuck, <laughs> you know. So it was like, you know, when I grabbed my gun to. Um, get him to go on back down the stairs and leave, um, he tried to grab the gun. Mm. So I was, in my mind, you know, I was, I, no, it was a shotgun. It was a shotgun. Yeah, it was a shotgun. and um, 12 gauge. 12 gauge, sawed off. And um, so he tried to grab the gun, and the only thing I could think of is he, if he get this gun, he's so mad, he's going to shoot me and kill my kids. Mm-hmm. So. And so with a shotgun, especially a sawed off, there's a mm-hmm. pattern and yes. so you hit him in the chest, and head. In the neck and the face. And what was your feeling right in that moment? Um, my feeling right at that moment was um, I was very s- s- sorry because when, when it hit him, I, I, when it, I pulled the trigger, my eyes was closed. You know, the only thing I knew that he was trying to grab it and, you know, just pull the trigger because I was, you know, he was trying to take the gun from me. He's so strong, so I couldn't let him get the gun. So when it hit him, all I heard was a thud going backward. You know, I didn't know if it hit him. My kids was coming out the door at the same time. I didn't know if it hit them. 
But when I opened my eyes, he was laid back on on a, on the floor, and he was bleeding profusely. So you know, at that moment, you know, I just thought I had to. I didn't really know where I hit him until I, you know, looked at him, and then I seen all the blood coming out, and it was just, it was just coming out everywhere. So I tried to stop the bleeding. So I grabbed towels and tried to stop the bleeding. I was telling him that I was so sorry. I was so sorry about it. Did he ever speak? Um, no, he was trying to, but he couldn't because I had shot him in the in the throat. Mm-hmm. Did someone call the cops or the medic or? Yeah, they called the police. Mm-hmm. And did they? Who showed up first? The police showed up first, and the um, the EMS. I'm sorry, D. What's yeah, I'm sorry. It happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not trying to cause you pain. Oh, no, 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 no. It's okay, but sometimes just going back to that memory is it's haunting. Yeah. And, um, you know, I try to suppress those thoughts and put it back. Because but I don't mind talking about it. It's helpful for me. But the thing is, is that People will talk a bunch of shit. Like they'll say, you know, I'm gonna cut you, or you know, I'll, you know, I'll pop a cap in you, or yeah. people talk a lot of shit. Yeah. But uh-huh. then, for someone who actually did that, that's what struck me about you mm-hmm. is there's no like, well, fuck him. He was gonna kill me. You know, no. he had it coming. Like I see to this day, you've done your time. Yeah. You know, you're way, you're 20 years on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. And people need to know that there are certain things in this world that you think you can't come back from. Yeah. And they need to know your life is forever changed, but it's not over. Right. You know, and you're going to have to go through this. Ain't no way around this. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to have to go through this. There's no pretending this didn't happen. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You suppress the memories, but, you know, um, when you think about them sometimes, it, it, it can become depressing. But you know that you have to go on. You have to move on in order to keep surviving. So my thing of it is, even at that point, I was surviving. I'm going to live. You're not going to take my life from me. And even during the process of me, because North Carolina doesn't have a self-defense law, um, they wanted to prosecute me. And um, they still... Well, they did prosecute Um Yes. Uh, well, I'm talking about the time when I got locked up, because I, I was in jail for 19 and a half months before they could officially charge... I mean, what they charged me, but, um, you know, charged me with first-degree murder. So you never so, bonded out. I never bonded out. I couldn't afford to. Yeah. So my process was, you know, even after that, just I still had to survive. I still had to make it through. So you took a plea. I took a plea. And the plea was to? Um, it was um, six to eight years, but the first plea that they gave me was 10 to 12 years. Yeah. And you had a public defender? Mm-hmm. You think they defender. did what um, they could or? I think he did what he could at the time. Yeah. Yeah. He he helped me out a lot. Um and he taught me a lot. But he also told me that, you know, in order because North Carolina doesn't have a self defense law that it was gonna be hard to um prove a not guilty. And I mean, today I feel like I should have took it to trial. But um I didn't because I was so scared because, you know, he always kept telling me that, you know, if you take a plea, you'll be out by the time, you know, your oldest get ready to graduate high school. Mm-hmm. So And so your thought about your kids was there. Mm-hmm. Now, so you gave birth in the county jail or did they take you out to a hospital? They took me out to a hospital. Mm-hmm. What was it like being pregnant in jail? It was the worst, uh, you know, just... It was a learning experience. Um, I got sick a lot because I'm allergic to a lot of things. You know, they they fed me as much as they could. Um, I would get double portions because I was pregnant. 
You know, they took but me. But you're out cut to, off from family. Yeah, I was cut off from family. That my mom would come and visit me and bring the kids to come and see me. Oh, she so she raised your three youngest. Yes, her and my cousins. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then when you gave birth, mm-hmm. did you have to then hand over that child to her? I guess I, I did. She had to come and get my baby for me. So, how much time did you have with your fourth child? My doctor had um, prescribed that I stay in. He was so sweet because um, you know he knew me throughout my other pregnancies. Um, so he allowed me to stay there like an extra three days. So I stayed there. I think a total of six days. That's you know not normal for you know a pregnancy. You stay there like two to three days and you're out. Um, but I stayed I think like six days, and it was Mother's Day week. I mean, I, I gave birth to her. I think uh, the day before Mother's Day or two days before Mother's Day. And then you handed her over to whom? To my mother. They um, allowed her to come in the room and, you know, talk with me and stuff. And, you know, she came and got the baby. Well, it makes it a little bit easier that you're not handing her over to some correctional officer. But right. yeah. by the same token, you're not going to see her for years. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how was that? Depressing. It was very, very depressing. I was very sad. I went through postpartum. Um, you know, um, it was really hard because, you know, I just, you know, killed my daughter's father. So uh, a lot of that went through my mind, like, how am I going to raise her and teach her about who she is and, and her dad and for her to understand? So part of me wanted to give up for adoption. I did. How are you and she now? Um, we're close. We're close. It was it was kind of strange for a little while because my mom raised her for about six years. How old was she before she knew what happened to her father? Uh, my mother told her. She didn't. <laughs> my mother didn't give me a chance to even tell her. And this was after I got out of prison and I came home. Um, I think she was like eleven or twelve. Mm-hmm. And how did she respond to that? Very negatively. She um, was not happy about it. She couldn't understand it. She wanted to know why and um, and how. Yeah. Did she ever understand that? I think she's learning to understand it today. Yeah. She's learning. She's learning that, you know, that I had to do what I had to do and that if I wouldn't have did it, she probably wouldn't be here. So, you know, you know, um, I, I always explain that to her. If I wouldn't have taken the steps that I've taken, that I may not be here, she may not be here, and my other children may not have been here today. So she looks at that, and it, that's like a strong point for her, um, for her to understand. But for a while, she couldn't understand you know, why I killed her dad. On more than one occasion, I have seen men kill the ex and the kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't happen all the time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it happens a lot. All too frequently. It does. It does. And so the idea that this is a threat, not just to you, but to the kids, mm-hmm. that's no idle threat. Right. There are men who say, even with their own children, mm-hmm. let alone somebody, these, else's, somebody yeah. else's oh, kids. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Violent men will do violent things. That's right. And one thing that distinguishes you and that immediately spoke to me when I met you was that you owned this. That you didn't say, oh, it wasn't someone, it was someone else, or he had it coming, or none of that. Like, to this day, you express remorse from that, mm-hmm. that, it, yeah. that it happened. Yeah, because Mama Bear had to come in and play. You know, um, you know, I'm a survivor. So, and, you know, I look to that as my stronghold, that I'm, I'm going to survive no matter what. So how did you learn how to do time? You learn a lot. 
in prison. I, I learned a lot when I was locked up in the county for 19 and a half months. And what I learned from different women in there, whenever we had an hour out, a lot of them came from prison and was, and was I mean, excuse me, was returning back. It was recidivism for them. They was back and right. forth. Recidivism. Right. So um, learning, uh, I ask a lot of questions. So I've never been locked up before. So I've never been to prison before. So me educate myself with their life and inserting myself in asking them questions. Um, how did you do this? How is prison? How is that? So I learned when I was locked up in the county how prison was going to be because I knew I was probably going. So I learned um, that when you go to prison that you have a little bit more freedom and that you can, it's a compound that you can walk you could do, um, you can walk around, exercise, you know, you have jobs that you can pick up and sign up for, you got school. So those things, I, you know, when I was listening to the ladies, a lot of them didn't utilize those things. So I said, when I do go to prison, I was going to utilize these things, um, get my education while I can, work while I can. And I did a lot of reading and writing. And I picked up a lot of skills like as far as crocheting. Um, and I learned how to do um, things like working in the tag plant. Like I made literally made car tags. <laughs> you know, I did that. I was good at that. And then keeping real close contact with my counselor and talking with my counselor on a weekly basis about how I can when I meet my different levels, how I can move up levels so that I can leave the maximum prison and go to a minimum prison so that I can start getting what you call honor grade um, levels as far as that was my main thing was trying to move through this system so that I could get to honor grade so I could get back to my kids. Well, the flip side is you can be a victim. You can say, I'm in prison. I don't belong here. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to sit in my, you know. And a lot of women did. And I didn't want no part of none of that. So and I see, never, the, never was part point, of that. But the point that I'm being the white man mm-hmm. is is there's a choice. Yes. Like you made a yes. choice. You said, I have the choice to go to this class. That's right. I have the choice to work mm-hmm. in the tag plant. Mm-hmm. I ain't going to just sit around. And, no. and bitch about how unfair everything is. And, and I, I think that made the difference for mm-hmm. you. Because on the one hand, it carved time off your sentence a little bit, right? Oh, um, No, it didn't. It didn't. It no, didn't uh-uh. even do that. No. Uh-uh. No, you just meet your levels and you go to an honor grade camp. Oh, okay. Yeah. So your reward is you don't have to be in, was it maximum? Yeah, I was in maximum security prison in Raleigh. And so when you go to honor grade camp, you can do oh, more stuff. You can work yes. on the outside. You work can on do- the outside. You can go to school on the outside. You can get home passes and, and that. So I want to be more closer with my family. And see, the reason I think this is so important is because we hear all this, oh, we got to be tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime. And that does nothing to help the offender who will inevitably be coming back out. And be looking for work Mm -hmm. and not to start some new shit, you know, not to start something all over again, Uh but to be able to go out and go, in your case, it was to a kitchen, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. But I'm skipping a step. Uh You went from honor grade to like a halfway house, right? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. And so you kept working, kept working, kept working, kept studying. Going to school. Mm -hmm. Straight and narrow, not getting Mm write-ups, not starting things, even when the... Somebody else wanted to start some mm-hmm. shit. You learned to step step aside. I stepped away from it. And so they let you go to a halfway house. Yes. I, I made it to the halfway house and I'm um, here in Charlotte called Echo. And um, I was there for three years and I completed my sentence there. Wow. I walked out the door. And there, what do you do during the day there? Um, I worked full-time because you have to have a full-time job, getting 30 hours or more a now, week. Now, how did you 
get that because <laughs> wasn't everybody looking for people to work at that time, especially right. if you had the big felony. So I had to sell myself. I had to learn how to adapt to selling myself, to sell who I am as um, a person that is re- rehabilitated and that um, that I was educated and that I wanted to work and work hard. And another thing that they um, told us to, that would help us is that they would get um, a $2,500 tax cut if they would hire me. So, you know, I had to go and I had to talk to people and, you know, sell that story for them to um, want to accept me into their, you know, working atmosphere. So paint me a picture. What did you, how did you dress and how did you go about getting that first job? Because the first one's always the hardest. Yes. So the, um, when you get to Echo, um, you know, I, they give you clothes because you don't have any clothes. So you um, essentially, when you get there, it's like you're still in the brown or the green clothing that they gave you. So they um, help you get clothes, dress you up, and um, get you ready for success. And they try to coach you into um, looking for jobs on the computer and um, tell you that you can go here. They, they have a list of jobs that hire felons. So they, I started there. You know, all them doors closed. Um, so I was out there in the heat just walking up and down. So they give you 30 days to try to accomplish this. So would you wear a dress? I, I would wear a dress. I would wear skirts. I would wear heels. And I would, um, you know, wear pants. And I was, you know, walking up and down South Boulevard, just knocking on every door I could to try to find something. Then I landed on um, the Pancake House, my 33rd day. Am I saying it right? Because <laughs> the, the, um, you get 30 days. So on the third, the third day after the 30 days, that's when I got a job. Because they was ready to send me back. They was so ready to send how, me back. How did you get a yes? I got a yes. I went to the Pancake House, the original Pancake House. And I talked to this little short African man named Wells, and um, <laughs> who's still there? Yeah, right? he was still there. He's been there almost 30, about thirty years. So I went in there, and I was so nervous. Um, I originally I had went to the one on South Boulevard because my case manager took me over there, and they was like, "Well, we're not hiring for this unless you want to be a server." And I couldn't be a server; I had to have full time payment. You know, so um, so I went to the other one off South Boulevard, and he was the only one in there that day. And um, he was like, "Can you cook?" I said, "Yeah, I could cook." You know, had you cooked in prison? I cooked in prison. I cooked in prison, and I I, I made the serving plates. Mm-hmm. So um, and then I you know I did that in the cafeteria, and then I went to work release, and I started working at K and W cafeteria. So, you know, I worked in there for this old white man that was really, really mean that had sinus problems. <laughs> he was really mean and he had sinus problems and he always had boogers coming out his nose <laughs> and stuff. So I was like, how am I working for this guy? But he taught me how to make cakes and bake cakes and read recipes. And he was very adamant on because all he did was hire prison um people to come in his um in KW all in the back was people from prison. So I learned and I adapted to that. They helped me get that job. So it what Echo Echo was different. I had to go out and find my job, you know. So when I went to um the pancake house, I was able to sell myself and he was like, okay. He said, I'm gonna try you. You're gonna work in the kitchen from five thirty to two thirty. You okay with that for four days a week? I was like, Yeah, that's gonna give me the How did you I get need. there at five in the morning? I walked because Echo was only five minutes down the street and I was so blessed with that. I walked to work. I didn't have to catch the bus or nothing. Wow. It's still early. Yeah, it's still early. And it was dark. And was I scared? Yeah. But my confidence and my adrenaline at that point just kicked in because still in my mind, I just wanna I just wanna get back to the norm. I just wanna get back to my kids. I wanna make the best of the situation and just let the time pass so that I can go ahead and finish my time and go home. Are you a person of faith? I am. So where was prayer in all this? Every day. Every day, every morning, 
Every time I can just, you know, lift my eyes to the skies. You know, every time I close my eyes, prayer. Prayer mm. did it for me. Yeah. And so how long did you work at the pancake place? For 13 and a half years. Oh, my word. <laughs> I mean, that's way after you got out. And you were making those omelets or? Making them omelets. Making them omelets and pancakes. And I worked in the back. I worked in the front. You know, I never served. I just always, you know, cooked. I cooked in the, you know, on the line, on every station. And that African man, he was mean too. Ah. But he was, you know, very stern and, um, you know, making you the best for that company. You know what I mean? So, you know, he made me the, the best cook yeah. in there. You showed me a picture on your business card of you and somebody very famous. Tell me that yeah. story. Of Kobe Bryant. Um, you know, I started working at the Pancake House, and it was like maybe three or four months after I started working there. Um, I was left on my own. Like at maybe one thirty, the other cooks started packing up because after the rush, it's like they started packing up and cleaning up, and they're going to hit the door because they're ready, they're ready to hit the streets themselves because, you know, they were free. So me, you know, I was willing to stay there until time closed so that I could get my four hours because, you know, I'm still at the halfway house. So, you know, I did what I had to do, and Kobe was there. I think it was 2006. Yeah, he had a game, and he injured himself. And he came there, and um, it was, they closed off, they locked the doors, because it was near closing time. And, you know, he asked me to make him an omelet. And I made him a Western omelet, and he said it was one of the best omelets he's ever had. Well, how were you able to come from the back of the house, out in the kitchen, out to meet him? Um. One of the servers came in and told me, she was like, Kobe Bryant is out there. I said, really? I said, wow. And I looked around the corner, and he was just sitting out there at the table. I didn't believe it at first. <laughs> I said, okay. So it was just her, him, and me, and the manager. And um, and he was sitting out there looking at the menu. He you know, pretty much knew what he wanted. And um, I asked him, you know, I asked the server to ask him, could I get an autograph and um, a picture. And he was like, yeah, sure. You know, after he eat, he'll, he would give me a picture. And I asked the server, did she have a phone um, that had a, a camera on it? And I think still at that time, he still had to do something. I don't think the cameras really was very good at that time like they are today. Um, so I had like this little... Um, I don't know why I carried around with me all the time, but I always carried around a, a disposable camera in my bag. And I had it in my bag that day. So I said, um, I got a disposable camera. And I asked the server, I said, would you take a picture of us? And um, she was like, yeah. So she took a couple of pictures. You know, it was awkward because I never met somebody, a legend like that, so famous. So, you know, I was, you know, standing there all stiff. And I was like, in my head, I was like, you know, how to, you know, stand by him. And he just embraced me. He just hugged me. He was like, girl, sis, come on. Come in here like you want this picture. You know, I was like, okay. So he took like <laughs> three or four pictures. And I was like, he made me so comfortable. He put his arms around me. And he made me put my arm around him. And, you know, we embraced. And, and that was the picture. And that's the picture that you see on my business card. That's lovely. Because mm -hmm. so often. And you told me he kept coming back. He kept coming back. And he, he kept coming back like maybe... Four or five years afterwards, even after we moved from South Boulevard to Charlottetown, he was um, Charlottetown was very crowded. So he would send his driver in there to ask the manager, could I cook his food? So we would have the manager would come out there and tell the head cook of omelets to move to the side so that I can cook his omelets for Kobe because <laughs> Kobe specifically asked it. I make his omelets. <laughs> and I'm sure he loved that. He did. He, yeah, like the, the the cook didn't love it. He was always pissed oh, that yeah. that happened. He was like, again? <laughs> you know, like that. So he would like come every every year. So I guess he would come and, you know, he, he came to Carolinas like frequently, you know. Did he send and a tip in? He would always send a tip in. I would at least get 50 to to $100 every time. And oh, his, his driver would come in and, and give it to my manager to get it me. And you got it? Oh yeah, oh yeah. He gave it straight to me. Um, he was like, because the the, the um the driver would stand there. He wouldn't sit down or nothing. 
He would stand there and watch to make sure that he seen the only black female back there that was cooking make that omelet because the station is on the end. So you could see when you walk in, you could see. The um, customers could see us. Now that's a kind of loyalty. You know, that goes way beyond taking a picture or signing an autograph or whatever. It's kind of it loyalty. Is. It is. And it made me feel, like, good, you know. I mean, amongst my coworkers, it made me feel kind of uncomfortable because I worked with them so long. And to um, have them, like, move aside so I can do this job was kind of like, like, who is she? That's how they looking at me. So I had to deal with that because I work with all men. Yeah, how was that? It was stressful at times, but I held my own. I held my own. Part of how I held my own is because I was incarcerated, and I knew that I had to make this work regardless. What did you learn having worked with nothing but women for years Mm -hmm. inside, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the tag plant or wherever? Mm -hmm. uh, What did you learn about working with men in the kitchen? How I had to deal with them was that... um, that I'm here, I'm here to stay, whether you like it or not. I do a good job, I do my job, and don't give me no shit about it, because I'm not going to give you no shit. Don't be disrespectful to me. I won't be disrespectful to you. We got to work together, because you need this job just as much as I need this job. So let's do this together. So I was always like the peacemaker, but I always held my own. You know, I've always was um, very headstrong. You know, I didn't let them talk to me any kind of way. They tried. They tried. <laughs> tried to push me out the way. They was trying to push me out the door, but I didn't let them. Um, how old were you when uh, you committed the offense that you went to prison for? You were. I was 20, 23, but turned 24 in there. Right. And they say now that your your brain is still in adolescence until you're 25. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of young women who could really, like, benefit from your wisdom because this is what I'm talking about. The ability to stand up for yourself mm-hmm. without a gun, a knife, without stepping to someone. Mm-hmm. So how do you do that? Um, well, I've always been a, a, a calm person. So I think um, because I was always calm and cool that um, you wouldn't think so because of my charge, but um, communication is always important. It's always important. Um, You know that you have to stand up for yourself regardless in order to make it to the next level. So I've always resorted to letting my next co the guys co-workers that I was working with that we got a common goal here you got bills to pay and I got a responsibility to hold on to so we got a common goal so we have to learn how to get along so that we can make it to the next level so I've always you know put that first you know whether we like each other or not we don't have to like each other I don't have to be your friend, but we're going to coexist and work together. So I've always been a teammate, a team player. So I think when they see God see that in me, they're like, okay, well, you know, she could be a bitch, but, you know, she's good to get along with and she's not going to let me run over her. So, you know, but long as we get the goal done and let's get this food out, you know, that's that's the main thing. So how did you learn how to work backwards from the sawed-off shotgun blast through the words into the way you rewire your brain so that no one will ever be beating on you again and you will never have to resort to that kind of a blunt threat. I give myself a lot of pep talks. I talk to myself a lot. What's that sound like? It sounds like... Girl, you know, you don't want to go through that shit again. You know, you got to try to make it and, you know, just don't let them run over you. Um, you know, he's trying to get you angry. Um, you know, you got to be in control. And it's your choice. Don't result to that. And just keep it going. Do the best that you can. Be your own hero. Because heroes just don't come out. And save you. You have to save you. Period. 
I had to talk to myself. And talking to myself is calming. I had to I had to learn how to listen. It's informative. It teaches me how to deal with other people. I listen to my 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 inner self to keep myself calm and collected and educated so that I can keep moving on. Because if I don't and I let that anger fester or come out, then I'm going to come to another halting point. It's going to stop shit. I don't want it to stop shit. I want to keep moving forward. I want to just live my best life. I can't allow anger and um, destructivism to allow me to stop what I got going on, whether somebody's trying to make me angry or not, or um, the situation is where it's combative. I'm not going to go back and be combative with you. Like, I had servers that would be very combative with me, and they're females. A lot of them were females, and they would go back and forth with me. So I had to keep myself talking to myself, keep myself calm, and still do a good job, you know. Like that. It's not easy, <laughs> but I got it done. If we get struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survives is this little bit of audio, uh, what is your legacy? Um, my legacy is that... Um, you know, I transitioned to doing something better for myself and that, um, you know, I love my family. I love my kids and I love myself. Yeah. That took work. It took work, a lot of work, a lot of dedication. Well, I honor and acknowledge and respect all the work you've done, Dee. Thank you. It's a pleasure to know you. It's a pleasure to know you too. <laughs> you're so you're so cool. <laughs> the way you talk to me is very calming, and the way you ask me questions and stuff like that. So you know, I didn't I didn't mind telling you my story. Well, you thank know? you. And well, no judgment, because I think there are a lot of people who are privileged, who have white male straight privilege, mm -hmm. and that was my story. Mm -hmm. Um who think that they are not capable, that they're just completely incapable of being in prison. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, my friends, you have a startling lack of imagination. Right. Because if you are in a certain circumstance, it might be that because you're white and male and straight that you would not wind up in prison. Mm -hmm. But I believe I am completely capable of doing something that would and should land my ass in prison. I mean, I drank under the influence and operated a motor vehicle hundreds if not thousands, probably thousands of times. Mm -hmm. And one red light, one person stepping off the sidewalk, mm -hmm. and that would have been vehicular homicide. It would have been yep. the same thing that happened to you. Mm -hmm. Different yeah. circumstance slightly, but mm -hmm. I mean, it would have been the same thing. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so I, I look at you like with no judgment. Um, well, the judgment I have is one of respect because you were constantly willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. And um, so thank you for making time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime you want to talk, I'm here. <laughs> I so respect uh, Queen Deep for taking on and owning the dark parts of herself, the really down parts of herself, and in blossoming on the other side. And I still see her from time to time, and I, I'm really proud, proud to know her. Thanks, Deep. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. 
a small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported me and manlistening.com, in her words, the podcast, and now Voice Locket and voicelocket.com. Thank you. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.